Before we uh, turn to the word, let's pray together. Gracious God, most merciful Father, you have given to us the rich and precious jewel of your most holy word. Assist us now with your Holy Spirit so that your word might be written in our hearts to our eternal comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect building of your, of your son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify and increase us in all the heavenly virtues that your word commands. Grant this, Heavenly Father, because of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen. Well, if you have that sermon notes page, uh, you can turn there with me and you'll note this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, and we'll eventually be back in the evenings. I want to focus our hearts and minds on the topic of God, of who God is. So uh, on the one side, there are several passages uh, this afternoon. We'll just, we're going to kind of run through some passages. One big theme I want to I point out to you from the Bible. Uh, there's also some uh, historical confessions of faith. We won't look at those today, but uh, I'll just have those printed out for you uh, from time to time. Uh, and then in the back, uh, there is a really, really uh, detailed and awesome introduction uh, and uh, outline. You see that in the back? Just kidding. Just kidding. So... It's in my head, trust me. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how to get it out on paper, but it's in my head. So uh, just to remind you and to ask you this question again, I know I've mentioned this before uh, many, many times, and I want to make sure that we reiterate this all the time uh, for us and for our kids. Um, how would you summarize the Bible? So this is the copy I have, a little paperback. It's a, big, it's a big book. It's a really, really big book. 66 little books inside of it that make up the Bible of the Old and New Testaments. What's the Bible about? How would you summarize the theme, the purpose, the story of the Bible? I usually do it in three words. So I, I do it in three words. About? God saves sinners. You guys, you guys are... Did I not teach you guys? Come on now. God saves sinners. I mean, this is all, this is all good stuff. It's all good stuff, but... Uh, in the most simplest way possible, God saves sinners. So what's the Bible about? God saves sinners. Uh, or another, another way to say it is, uh, we do the sinning. God does the saving, right? That's what the Bible's all about. We do the sinning. God does the saving. I'm going to make my camera here a little bit higher if I can. Uh, there we go. So God saves sinners. That's the big purpose, the great purpose of God. Uh, as he reveals himself to us in his word. Uh, and that purpose is to bring sinners like you and me who have rebelled against him, uh, who have abandoned him, sinned against him, as the Bible describes that. Uh, God's great purpose is to bring sinners like you and me back into restored fellowship and friendship with him. That's why he made Adam and Eve in the garden, was to glorify God, was to live with God, was to have fellowship with God, was to know God, uh, love and be loved. By God, And so first and foremost, as, as Christians, as those who believe the Bible, uh, as those who want to know uh, what the Bible says and how we are to live it out, first and foremost, you have to know that God saves sinners. And to know that God saves sinners, you've got to know God. You have to know God, right? The Bible is three big words, God saves sinners. But you've got to know that first word. You've got to know the hymn of that first word, God. 
We need to know God. We need to know God. That's, that's the most important thing that you and I can know in this life and for eternity. That's why we exist. It's to know God. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, great uh, uh, English preacher, called the study of God uh, the, the master science. The master science. What he meant by that was it's the most important thing you and I can know. To know God, to study God, to understand who God is, what he's like, what he does, why he does it. It's the master science. It's the most important thing that we can know. And so to know this is to know him. To know the stuff about God is to know God. So I want us to focus our hearts and minds uh, in the afternoon and eventually into the uh, back to the evening service uh, uh, in, in, uh, in the fall, I, I assume. I want us to focus our hearts and minds on who God is. So we'll talk this afternoon just for a few minutes here uh, about this great, great theme that God reveals throughout his word where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll, we'll look at uh, his, his, his existence and his attributes, his characteristics, who he is as a, as a triune God. But this afternoon, just for a few minutes, I want us to focus on those verses that are on that one side of the, of the, of the outline uh, to see this theme. And what I want you to see there in, the, in these verses, so Genesis 17, uh, that's where, where, where God reveals himself to Father Abraham. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me, be blameless. And then he says that I may make my covenant between me and you. Uh, and then he goes on to say about uh, his covenant with Abraham's descendants. And I will be their God. And I will be their God. And you see, I want you to see that theme. Uh, I printed out. And these are just some, some examples. That theme runs throughout the Bible. Old and New Testaments. And so uh, as you look at these verses in front of you. And as we meditate upon this theme that God is our God. And that we are his people. I want you to see, first of all, something about God in, that, in those verses. Number one, God takes the initiative in restoring humanity to fellowship. God takes the initiative in restoring humanity to fellowship. And as you read those verses, it's God who's doing the action here. It's God doing the speaking. It's God, as I, as I said, you know, we do the sinning, God does the saving. It's God who reveals himself to Abraham and, and to Moses and to the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and through John the Apostle. It's God who reveals himself. It's, it's God who says, I am your God. It's God who says, you shall be my people. So notice there in those verses, again, verse uh, Genesis 17, where, where he says, I will be their God. Right? God takes the initiative to call to himself Abraham and all of his descendants. I will be their God. As we saw in our Genesis sermons of, of, of Father Abraham, he, he came from a family of idol worshipers. And so just to prove that point and to emphasize that point that it's God who takes the initiative, God called Abram out of a family of idolaters, as Joshua 8 describes. I will be their God. Again, uh, in, in Exodus 6, where God speaks to Moses uh, there, he, he says, uh, I will take you. I will take you. To be my people. And again, uh, he speaks uh, in Genesis or in Exodus 29. This is the context of building the tabernacle. Why? Why was a tabernacle to be uh, to be built? God says there, uh, for example, I will be their God again. Right. That theme. I will be their God. You see it in Leviticus 26. Um, Jeremiah uh, 
says Jeremiah is reflecting back upon the Israelites and the times of Moses and, you know, sort of, quote unquote, the good old days. Here they are in the days of Jeremiah in their sins. They're wallowing in Babylon. But yet God says this command I gave them, speaking of Moses and the Israelites, obey my voice and I will be your God. And again, the prophet Jeremiah says that Jeremiah 24, 7, I will be their God. Uh, and, and again, Ezekiel 37, and again, Revelation 21. I will be their God. God takes the initiative. God takes the initiative. We call that the sovereignty of God. Uh, we talk about predestination and election. It's God who takes the initiative to restore us in the human race of sinners to fellowship with him. And that theme you see there in those verses, it's throughout the Bible. The law, the prophets, Revelation. God takes the initiative in restoring humanity to fellowship. Secondly, I want you to see there in those verses, it's God who dwells with those he restores to fellowship. God dwells with those he restores to fellowship. Again, he commands Abraham there when he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Right? He's describing how he's to live. He's to, he's to live a life of godliness. And it's described as walking, but notice, walking before me. The whole life of Abraham, our whole life, is lived in the presence before the face of Almighty God. And so God dwells, he lives, he resides in and amongst those he restores back to fellowship with him. You see that again there in, uh, in Exodus 29, uh, where the Lord, again, through Moses is speaking of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle. And he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God uh, and, uh, and so forth. They will know that I'm the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. So God re- uh, brought Israel out of Egypt to live among them. And and the way to show them that he lived among them was the building of this tent, the tabernacle, in which it was in the very center of their camp. If you look at, if you read the story of Numbers and how the the camp of Israel was structured, at the very center of it was the tabernacle. And what was inside the tabernacle? God. God was in the tabernacle. That's where he lived. That was his tent. That's where he lived. And the Israelites lived around him in their tents. And so he brought them out to dwell amongst them. He brought them out to live amongst them in that tabernacle. Again, uh, Leviticus 26, verse 12. God says, I will walk among you. God, who, who, who is spirit, who has no body. God, who fills all things, who made all things, describes himself in human terms. I will walk among you. I will live among you, in other words. And again, Ezekiel 37, 27. The prophet is again speaking in times in which they are in exile in Babylon. And then he's reiterating those ancient promises. You know, when God brings you back into the promised land, here's what it's all about. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so God takes initiative to restore us to fellowship. Secondly, God dwells with those he restores to fellowship. And so you read it in your New Testament, all throughout the letters of the apostles, 
about God dwelling within us, the Spirit living within us, being the temple of the Holy Spirit, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. That's the reality of all those Old Testament promises where God says, I will dwell amongst you. In the New Testament, amazingly, it's true of not just the church. Ephesians 2 describes the church as the dwelling place of God. But the individual believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells amongst us. Thirdly, God calls us to participate in fellowship with him. So all these verses where God says, I will be your God. I will take you to be my people. I will dwell among you and so forth. God's doing the initiative. But notice God also graciously enlists our participation to have fellowship with him. You'll notice in some of these verses where the Lord uses, uh, again, that very familiar Old Testament phrase, they shall know that I am the Lord. You see that in Exodus chapter number six, verse seven, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, Exodus 29 says that they will know that I am the Lord. We hear that we hear that as just sort of factual, informational kind of stuff. But what does it mean to know the Lord? How do we know the Lord? Well, it's described in these verses as participating in the life that God has, that he gives to us by his grace, by walking before him and being blameless. That was the great commandment to Abraham. Walk before me, who, because I dwell with you, and be blameless. Well, what does that say about God? God is a God of holiness. God is a, is a holy God. He's holy, holy, holy. He's without sin. He lives in blessedness and perfection. And he calls us amazingly, graciously, to participate in that life as well. And you see, you see there, for example, uh, in, in, uh, in the, that verse that I listed there from Jeremiah. Uh, there's two of them from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7. Uh, this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God. You shall be my people. So the, this language of knowing the Lord is also equivalent to this live, walking before the God, obeying his voice. And notice how that happens. Jeremiah 24. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. To know God is to turn to him with our whole heart. Is to come to him acknowledging our sins, turning from our sins in repentance, giving to him our sins and saying, Lord, I'm I'm helpless. I'm needy. I'm dependent. Help. I believe in you, but yet help my unbelief. It's coming to him and asking him to forgive and to wash and to cleanse and to renew and to restore us because we can't do it ourselves. And so the prophet said there's going to be a day to come in which I'm going to give my own people a new heart. And they're going to use that heart to turn to me with that whole heart. And by doing that, we will know the Lord. Repentance and faith. Turning from ourselves and turning to Jesus. 
That's the way that happens. Turning to God with our whole heart. And by doing that, we know him. And we begin to live for him. We begin to obey him and to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Fourthly, God's fellowship. So first of all, again, God takes initiative in restoring humanity to fellowship. Uh, Secondly, God dwells with those. He restores the fellowship. Third, God calls us to participate in fellowship with him by turning to him and by loving him and living for him. Fourthly, these verses say this. God's fellowship is the ultimate goal of our existence. So start at the top of those verses there, Genesis 17. And if you read those verses all the way down, it's where God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will take you to myself and you will walk before me. Uh, I will give you a heart that you don't have yourself and you will obey me and so forth. But notice that last verse. The very end of our Bibles says this in Revelation 21. This is that great vision of a city that comes down out of heaven from God himself. It's a picture of the bride of Christ, the church, in its perfection, in its glory, in its majesty, in its full state. When, when we will see him face to face, we'll have no more sin. All the tears are wiped away from our eyes. And we are described as righteous and holy and perfect. Clothed in these beautiful dress, this beautiful dress of white. This, this image of perfection and purity. And in that vision that God gives to John, God says this. The one who conquers. And he's speaking here in the context of Revelation. To conquer is to believe in Jesus in the face of persecution, even if you become a martyr. So that is what it means to conquer. When, if, if the world kills you, you've actually conquered the world. If they don't kill you, you conquer it by faith in Jesus Christ. So the one who conquers, who trusts in Jesus in spite of all the world's persecution, that person will have this heritage. Here's your inheritance. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. What's different in that, in that little phrase there in Revelation 21? What's different about the way that it's phrased there than all those other verses above it? There's something different, isn't it? All throughout the Bible, God is always saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. But at the very end of the story, the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, reveals and inspires the apostle to say the same thing, but yet to add something or to, to add some some color to it. I will be his God. We've seen that all these times. And he will be my son. He will be my son. He's quoting there. He's he's alluding to there. He's paraphrasing there. All these verses, as well as that verse from Psalm number two. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It speaks ultimately of of the Messiah, Jesus. David's greater son, the son of God. But by faith, we are united to Jesus Christ and God is our God. And the heritage that God gives us, the inheritance that he has for us for all of eternity is that he says to you and to me, to all of us, he 
will be my son, my son. In Christ, we are adopted as sons of God, even as, even as women. We are adopted as sons of God, inheritors of the promises of God. He, the, the only begotten son, and we become firstborn, like firstborn sons. In all that God has given to Christ, his son, he actually gives to us. And that's why he can say, I will be his God and he, whether you are a he or a she, he will be my son. All inheritance, all the rights, all the blessings, all the privileges. To see me face to face, to know me in perfection, to, have, to, to be sinless, to be righteous, to be holy, to be loved by God and to love God in return in perfection. And so the, that fellowship with God as a son, it's the ultimate goal of why we exist. It's why God made us in the beginning. It's why God has tried for generations to restore the human race despite our rebellion by sending his son by offering the gospel by sending the spirit yet we are a stiff necked resisting people but yet God still as he says he holds out his hand to us he bends over backward to bring us back into fellowship with him why? so that we would know him as sons to know him to be loved by him and to love him and so this wonderful theme of scripture where God says I will be your God I will be your God. That's why we exist. To know him and to know this purpose. He is our God and we are his people. Now, in conclusion, let me just say this uh, just by way of some brief, some brief application. Uh, in J.I. Packer's uh, great classic book, uh, Knowing God. If, if you've not read his great book, Knowing God, uh, I can't commend it enough knowing God J.I. Packer and it goes through the attributes of God and, and some great themes but in that book uh, I believe this is the second chapter of that book he, he says this those who know God for those who know God there are four great sort of practical benefits of it and I want to use those in conclusion so when we know God that God is our God and we are his son First of all, what does that mean for us? And what does that do for us? First of all, those who know God have great energy for God, Packer says. Those who know God have great energy for God. Those who actually know Him have great energy to serve Him, to obey Him, to walk with Him and be blameless. To really know Him and to hear His voice. We met somebody on our uh, on our trip last week, um, who, uh, who 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 called my phone number to get a hold of Cyprian, and uh, this person was giving us a ride uh, to and from the university that we were visiting, and uh, person says in the in the car, said, uh, "Oh, I I I, I heard your your your, uh, your your voicemail, and uh, that you're a pastor." And I always know that's kind of an ominous beginning to a conversation. Someone says, and you're a pastor. And I said, as a matter of fact, I am. <laughs> so what, right? And it says, yeah, I just, uh, I, I just finished my Master of Divinity at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. Um, so I was, you know, and I was really interested to, to hear that. And I said, oh, you know, 
well, how'd you end up working at a, at a Division One basketball, uh, for a Division One basketball program? Uh, it's like, well, you know, I, uh, I became a Christian when I was in college, and the last seven years of my life, I was in college for four years and seminary for three years, and all I did was read theology books. I just, I, every moment of every day, I just read theology books, theology books, theology books, and I devoured theology books. And I said, oh, okay, well, but how'd you get it here? Why are, you, why are you not, you know, well, you know, I, I wanted to either go into the ministry, be a pastor, or be a theologian. And I said, okay, but how'd you get, how'd you get in this car with this giant kid in the front seat and his mom and dad in the back seat? Why, why are you driving me drive to this university? And said, well, you know, I just got really burned out on reading theology books. And I, I figured I, I just need a change of life. I need a, a new, a new, a new uh, direction in life. So I have, thankfully I have the guy's phone number and uh, hopefully I'll have some good conversations uh, follow up, following up. But it kind of left me thinking, you know, does this, does this person know God? They studied a ton for seven years, but now has zero desire. And I said, you know, well, where do you go to church? Well, I haven't gone to church since I've been here. Are you a Christian? <laughs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> so we'll see how the conversation goes. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll strike up a good friendship with, with, with this man and uh, see him come to know the Lord. So those who know God, really know him, have great energy for God. Secondly, and, and, and more briefly, those who know God have great thoughts of God. As, as, we'll, as we'll study and think about God's attributes, that he is simple, uh, that he's omnipotent, he's omniscient. Uh, he's omnipresent. He's holy. He's just. He's perfect. Uh, God has the attribute of aseity, that he needs nothing. He's completely self-sufficient in himself. Those who know God have big thoughts about God. We don't try to bring God down to our level to accommodate our lives. That's what so many professing Christians are doing right now. They've brought God down to their level. To accommodate their life. Do you know that? Do you know that? I wasn't, I wasn't here last Sunday, of course. It was a Sunday after the, 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 the big announcement of the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, I, there's many articles about all these denominations and all these pastors and all these churches, all these theologians, all these writers uh, giving their thoughts on what just happened. And, you know, they try to say, well, here's, you know, this said, you know, we're happy that uh, this decision was made. And others said, you know, this is the worst thing you know, since the creation of the world. And we can't believe this. And, you know, how is this honoring to God that people's, you know, rights and, and, and their freedoms are taken away and, and so forth? Do we have big thoughts about God or not? I mean, is God God or not? And to bring God down to your level so that you can satisfy your own desires and make that happen in any way possible, and yet say that you believe in God. So it's a big spiritual battle that's going on. Those who know God have big thoughts about God. Thirdly, those who know God have great boldness for God. Great boldness for God. If you know God, you're willing to listen to what he says and do what he says to do. Great boldness. Live a godly life. Be different. Speak his word. Speak harsh things at times. They're going to come off as harsh. But yet the gospel, right? The good news as well. To be bold for God. To tell our kids about Jesus. And not be afraid. 
to tell our loved ones and our neighbors about Jesus and not be afraid to do great things for him, to be bold for him, despite the obstacles and the opposition that we all sense in our world. If we know God, we'll, we'll be bold for him. And finally, those who know God have great contentment. Great contentment with God. How can you not? Do you realize that the God of the universe knows your name? He knows every single hair upon your head. He knows you. He knows you. Nothing else matters. God knows me and he has saved me. He's chosen to be my God. He's made me his, 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 his people, his son. That's all we need. That's all we need. We should be content. We should be content. So those who know God have great contentment for God. Because as I mentioned earlier in the first sermon, we know who wins. We know who wins. Be content. Be happy. Be thankful. Be joyful. Be blessed. Let's pray.